time. Glad I'm not preaching on preparation. We'll be back. Okay, so um, before we get into uh, the third part of these lessons, I want to uh, briefly address uh, Wanda's question about evangelism, and I want to I want to uh, shape the, the answer a little bit with a couple of preliminaries. First of all, our value as human beings derives from the fact that we're made in the image of God. And Genesis 1, 26-28, God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and he made them male and female. Man and woman are made in the image of God and are of equal value before God. And so this roles are not the same as, as value. Uh, Paul asserts this in his discussion along these lines in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, As the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 7, says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so he points out here that the woman, the wife, is a fellow heir of the grace. She has the same inheritance in God that he does. Now, we, we trip up over that as someone weaker since she's a woman. And uh, that I have heard all kinds of explanations of that. Uh, some people say it's about upper body strength. I don't think that is Peter's particular concern here myself. And so what is, he, what is he saying? Well, he's not saying women are more spiritually weak, and he's not saying women are more mentally weak. First of all, on the spiritual end of things, I've never seen a church that didn't have more women than men. Think about that, or seldom. Uh, so what does he mean when he says that she's weaker or she's a woman? God has put her in a position of submission. That, that's, that's what he means. She is in a position of submission, and so she is counting in the, in the marriage relationship. She's counting on her husband to be a leader, and if he doesn't, it puts her in a very, very awkward position because she is depending on him to fulfill his role. And she, she is not allowed by God to step into that role, and so she's depending on him for that, and he needs to recognize that she's depending on them and fulfill his role. So I, I think that is the intent of that, but Male and female is about God's roles from creation, not about value or capability or any of that sort of thing. God made men in a certain way to fulfill a certain role, and he made women in a certain way to fulfill a certain role. And I think we live at a time, this probably goes without saying, where it is critical that we hold the line on the roles that God has given because the world has lost their mind. They do not know the difference between a man and a woman. And I don't know how much of that you see down here, but Lexington, Kentucky, man, we feel like the 
would be like the same folks in the asylum up there. It is, it is an absolute mess. And so, I, and I, I will also say that a woman who is a Christian is going to give expression to her Christianity in her, in her day-to-day life and in her day-to-day speech. And I am confident that every man here has learned some spiritual lessons from women. However, I believe in a formal teaching situation, we need to give heed to passages like 1 Timothy 2, 9 and following. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve, and so on. And so my understanding of God's intent is that, are women going to have influence on men? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's evident in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. That wives will, will be able to bring their husbands back to the Lord by what? By their godly behavior. And by fulfilling their role. And so absolutely women are going to have a spiritual influence on men. But in a formal teaching situation, I think it would be good to get a, a man involved in teaching a man. And that that's my understanding of scripture. If somebody's got another perspective or somebody wants to correct me in some kind of way, I'm I'm more than open to that now or later. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but uh, that's uh, uh, that's that's what I've got. And so let's uh, let's move on to uh, benevolence, and, and you can edit that out of the lesson, you can leave it in the lesson. I'm fine either way. I'm fine either way. Uh, so one of the things that the church has struggled with throughout its history, we talked about this last time at the, at the beginning, uh, is their role in caring for the poor and needy. And I think various extremes have existed. One, one extreme has been some churches neglect benevolence altogether and they operate as little more than middle class social clubs. And then the other extreme is that churches pursue all, all manner of programs to solve various social problems and in consequence, they abandon their God-given spiritual purpose. And so we want to look at the New Testament pattern uh, for benevolence. And then I want to spend a little bit of time at the very end of this lesson thinking about some of the ways in which edification, evangelism, and benevolence intersect. Because I believe they do. There's a sense in which they are separate things, but there's a sense in which they are not separate things. And I don't think you could do one or two of them well and neglect the other. I think if you neglect one aspect of this, everything else is going to suffer. And so I, I want to I give some attention to that at, at the end of the lesson. And so let's look first at the church's example. It says, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone 
might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Well, who is this care going on among? Well, it says, all those who believe. And so, the church in Jerusalem took care of its own. It took care of the saints in Jerusalem. There were needy saints in Jerusalem, and they were cared for. Those who had an excess sold the excess, and they shared with those who had need. And this facilitated, uh, among other things, facilitated their unity. And we see the same thing in Acts 4, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be, would be distributed to each as they had need. And so if you go back here in, to Acts chapter 4 and verse uh, 32, the congregation of those who believed. And so again, who is being cared for in this way? Well, it's happening among the congregation of those who believe. This is Christians taking care of Christians. And that was the, that was the collective effort. And then in Acts chapter 6, in verse 1, Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, we have to understand that this is more than... We look at this and we say, well, you know, they're all Jews. What's the problem? Just because some of them don't speak the same language? The divide was much bigger than that. <coughs> the divide was much, much bigger than that. So... The Jews in Jerusalem spoke Hebrew and had something of a reputation of being strict adherence to the law. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek, used the Septuagint, and have had something of a reputation of being compromised. So there, there's some old, very old divisions here. You know, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, we're the ones that we're the ones that came back and we're the ones that are operating in the temple and we're the ones that are staying faithful to the Lord and those hmm, I don't know. And so there's there's a divide here and this 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 problem arises that there are widows being overlooked, but they're all they're all Christians now. They've all come to God through Jesus Christ. Whatever religious divisions may have existed in the past, they've all come to God through Jesus Christ. And we learn from First Timothy five nine and ten that churches had would have at least the church in Ephesus did, where Timothy was. They had a list of widows that they took care of, and that's apparently what was going on here. But there are some there are some Hellenistic widows that are are being overlooked. And so what do they do in that situation? Well, they get together. And they appoint some men to make sure they're not overlooked anymore. They fix the problem. But this was a real problem, and it was a problem that was rooted in prejudice. And they they came together, and they said, we're, 
Yes, this is a problem. No, that should never have happened. We are going to fix this. And they, they appoint seven guys who all happen to have Hellenistic names, which is interesting to me. They have Greek names. They said these guys are going to make sure these widows are taken care of, and they, they took care of their own. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to that passage because something really interesting happens. But not only is this a model for Christians taking care of Christians, but it's a model for Christians solving problems in their midst. What they didn't do is say, well, you know, it was probably just a mistake. And just, let's just let it go and, and uh, not, not. We don't want to, we don't want to cause a stir. It might inflame old, old problems. And, and so we, you guys just need to leave that alone. That is not what happened. What happened was these people brought a problem, and the leadership said, "This is a problem. We got to fix this." And I promise you, if you were a Greek-speaking widow in that church, you would want them to fix it. At least by lunchtime on day two, you would want that, right? You want that problem fixed. And, and, and they did indeed fix it, and good things came from it. And then things moved to a, yet another level in Acts chapter 11, uh, 29 and 30. It says, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means... Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so what happened in Acts 11:28? right before that, is Agabus had come down with some other prophets. He had come down, and he had revealed to them that there was going to be a great famine. And this was going to impact the uh, Christians in Judea. And the consequence was that the church in Antioch sent a contribution to the church in Jerusalem for the care of needy saints in Jerusalem. And so this this and this is amazing. This is an amazing picture of reconciliation because you've got a you've got a Gentile church taking care of Jewish Christians. That's an even bigger that's an even bigger divide than Hebrew speaking Christians and Greek speaking Christians. These Gentile converts to Christianity, primarily Gentile converts to Christianity, and I said, yeah, we're going to take care of our brothers in Christ. And so one of the things you see in all of this as they're taking care of one another, as Christians are taking care of Christians, is you're seeing them doing that across former divisions. We see love, care, and reconciliation models in the church as they took care of one another. And then in Acts 24, 17, after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, Paul says. And so uh, a number of churches had contributed in that case. If we look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, and 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and following, we know there are churches in Macedonia and Galatia and Achaia, uh, to name a few, that had contributed. It was sent by messengers appointed by the churches, we learn in 2 Corinthians 8, 18 to, uh, 18 to 21. Uh, and so uh, they sent the money to care again for needy saints uh, in Jerusalem. And they traveled with Paul to relieve the needy saints in Jerusalem and 
So well, Acts 24, 17 doesn't say things about saints. Correct. But Romans 15, 25, and 26, Paul is very specific there. He says that it is for needy saints. And so we see Christians taking care of Christians. And that is consistent with the apostolic teaching. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3, we just alluded to that, concerning the collection for who? The saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Again, messengers sent, and then Paul ends up traveling with them, of course, but they sent messengers to carry the gift to the saints in Jerusalem. And 2 Corinthians 9.12, the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So God is glorified, and the saints are taken care of. And so the universal picture we see is that Christians took care of needy Christians. Now there's an important distinction made that we, we need to acknowledge that I think helps us to see this clearly. Uh, and it is in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 and verse 16. Paul writes here, by inspiration of the Spirit, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. And so Paul makes a distinction between Christian widows in need who have family who can take care of them, and Christian widows in need who don't have family who can take care of them. He says, in the case of Christian widows who have family to take care of them. The family needs to take care of them and not certainly those families if that family are believers and not burden the church with that. That's 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 actually not the church's responsibility. That's these individual believers' responsibility. And so it makes this this distinction between an individual responsibility and a collective responsibility. And that, that is a, a distinction that we need to appreciate. And so what we see in the New Testament is, and what we hear from the apostles, is that churches are responsible for taking care of needy Christians among them. And if a church gets to a place where it cannot take care of its own needy Christians, it does not have the ability to take care, churches elsewhere may help them take care of those needy Christians. But the collective responsibility is always for needy saints. It's not general general benevolence. We, we do not see that. And so the, cre- the question arises, does the church have a role in benevolence outside of the Lord's people. Does the church have a role in taking care of people? Does collectively, does the church have a role in doing that? And so, given everything I've said, you're probably expecting me to say no, it does not. 
And it is true that the church is not charged with directly helping those outside of the Lord's people. However, the church does have a role in helping people in need out there, and it is this. It's not direct, but it is real. The role of the church in in helping, benevolently helping people out there is to equip individual saints to help people out there. That is the role. It is to teach individual Christians what Paul taught. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Or James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orders and orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, clearly, James 1.27 is written to individuals, right? Keep oneself unspotted from the world. That, that is an individual command. The role of the church is in edification. It is to, it is to encourage and teach and to build people up to be merciful. And, and this, why am I even bringing this up? It, it may sound like I'm muddy in the water. But there's a reason I want, us to, I want us to try and think through this. Because here's what I have seen happen over and over and over again. A, a church will undertake general benevolence, and they'll they'll set up some kind of system to take care of uh, homeless people or poor people or uh, handicapped people, and all you know all those are all things that need to be done, right? And, and so that and what happens is because the church undertakes a role collectively that is not theirs, then the members don't have to do that anymore. And so they can just throw money at it and let somebody else, let some organization or institution or somebody else take care of it. All you have to do is give some money. But if we follow the New Testament pattern, what's going to happen is that collectively the church is going to take care of its own needy, and it's going to encourage its individual members to go out and get their hands dirty and actually help other people who need help. And you know, it is very, very difficult to make friends with an institution. It is very, very difficult to feel a sense of love and loyalty for an organization. But a person who has picked you up when you were down and helped you when you were hungry, there's going to be a bond there. And when you find out that person did that because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, there is a high potential for good things to happen. So what happens when churches get outside their lane and pursue this sort of general benevolence is they shortcut their members becoming the disciples they ought to be. And it all just becomes a matter of money. 
And that is, that is tragic on a whole host of levels. Because the church has lost its way and it has subverted its members becoming who the Lord wants them to be. Because the fact is, God wants us to be a people, and I, 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 I don't think I'm out on a limb on this. God wants us to be a people who don't walk by on the other side. God wants us to be a people who, when we're going down the road and we see somebody bloody and beaten, we go over and pick them up and help them out. I, I feel confident in saying that. And so, there's a connection between benevolence and evangelism and edification. But there, there are there are more there are more connections. We noted just a minute ago that churches are responsible to equip saints to be benevolent toward all men, Galatians six ten. And so edification forwards benevolence. Jesus said, When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What is his assumption there? It's not even a command, it's just an assumption. He doesn't say you should give to the poor. He doesn't say if you give to the poor. What does he say? He says when you give to the poor. His expectation is his disciples are going to give to the poor. The other thing that happens and this, this is what we see in, in Acts chapter 6. When Christians take care of one another, eventually the world is going gonna, is gonna to take note of that. I want to give a couple of illustrations of this, and then, and then the lesson will be yours. The first illustration is in Acts chapter 6 itself. Because after they solved their widow problem, notice what happens. The, the widow problem is spelled out in Acts 6, 1 through 6. Notice Acts 6 and verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now that's an interesting statement. Why do you think it's at this particular moment that the priests suddenly become interested in this Nazarene movement that's going on? Well, I don't know if I can prove this, but this is what seems to be the case. It's at least consistent with what we know. In Deuteronomy 15.11, it says, the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother and, and to your needy and your poor in the land. And so the Jews were supposed to be taking care of one another. But guess what? It wasn't happening. And so these priests who know the law and they know what should be happening among God's people, they look at these Christians over here and say, wow, they're serious. They take care of their own people. That's what God wants. That's 
they're actually legit. Maybe I need to look into this. Because they know they know God's expectations with regard to the poor among them. They're not, they're not ignorant of that. That is not uniquely a New Testament phenomenon. It was true under the law as well. But they weren't doing it. They weren't getting the job done. Now all of a sudden these Christians come along and they claim to be the fulfillment of everything that God had been doing. And guess what? Not only are they fulfilling it in the sense that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and, and the Spirit of been, but they're actually living like God's people. And they take care of one another and it's real family. They said, you know what? You know, I, I want to be part of that. That's that's incredible, actually. So, there are some a couple of brethren who have gone into a medium security prison in Indiana for years and years and years, and uh, they studied with a number of people, and, and some guys were converted and. One of them got out of prison, convicted rapist, and he came down to the congregation where those men had come from and wanted to be a member. Welcomed him in. He didn't have any place to live. He didn't have any stuff. And so they found him an apartment. And uh, he, I, I think he, he had a job and he was working, able to pay for the apartment. But he didn't, he didn't. And so the ladies, wrap your head around it, the ladies in the congregation, went over there and furnished his apartment of this new Christian who's a convicted rapist. And one day the elders got a call from a guy and he said, I'm his brother. And I do not know what you did to him, but he is a changed man. work God's way whether it's edification whether it's evangelism whether it's benevolence there is power in that and there is influence in that and we must the one thing we must not do is we must not believe the devil's lie when he looked at us and said nothing you do is ever going to make any difference Nobody cares anymore. Nobody's interested anymore. People care about changed lives. And people notice goodness and righteousness and mercy and justice and wisdom and love, real godly love. They, they know that. And that, that group of saints 
loved that man and took care of that man. He come from a very dark and ugly place. And people around him took notice. And there's power in that. And so it's not as if you've got edification and evangelism and benevolence as distinct they are facets of our part in God's glorious and eternal purpose. And thank God, thank God that He has given us the privilege of having a part in that. But remember, remember what He said: if you if you change something perfect, you don't make it worse. You can't you can't make perfect better. And, and the as they say, the proof is in the pudding. Look at what happened in the book of Acts when people simply set about doing God's work the way he said to do it. It turned the world upside down. How, how many members here? 25. Okay. Well, Jesus turned the world upside down with 12. So you got a few too many. But I think you can still do it. Don't. With God, it's not about numbers, and it never has been. You have more than enough godly saints here to forever change Mississippi and beyond. And so my prayer is that you will dream God's dream after. And we will all together, wherever we may be, serve Him to His glory until that day when we can be in His glory together. And may God grant you the strength and the wisdom to do what He has called us all to do. I love this group down here. I love what you're doing. I love who you are. I'm, I'm thankful to be able to come down here and just give a little tiny bit of encouragement to people who are already headed in the right direction, trying to do the right thing. And uh, so I, I get, I get so much more out of this than, than I give, and I, I know that. I recognize that. So the Lord. The Lord bless you in all that you're doing. If there's anyone here who needs to obey the gospel, we have a, we don't have a, I mean, if there's anybody that needs to obey the gospel, just come up and say, hey, I need to obey the gospel. You don't, you don't need an invitation song for that. And if there's a Christian here who needs some help, you don't need an invitation song for that. Just let somebody know, whether it's all of us or some of us. That, that's what we're here for. This is... This is a family. This is a community. And that's the beauty of what, what God has done. So I, I thank you for your kind attention and your nearly infinite patience.